Welcome back, friends. This week, our guest is Jennifer Moss. Jennifer Moss is an award-winning journalist, author, and public speaker. She is a bona fide expert on burnout and workplace well-being. We cover a huge amount in just over an hour here, and I'm very confident you will take a huge amount from this. Jennifer has a fantastic ability to swim within the nuances of work-life balance and well-being. And she's also just a lovely, lovely person. It really was a pleasure talking to her. Have her on the podcast. Thanks for listening. And please let us know what you think. All the best, guys. Jennifer Moss, thank you so much for making time for us. What's the crack? How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here and to talk with uh, with you guys today. It's going to be a great conversation. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, me and, yeah, me and Seb have kind of had alternative perspectives from the working from home life. And yeah, I guess I've been following your work when I, when I guess I started to experience this, what I think was burnout, um, which we'll get into. First of all, though, just to give our listeners a bit of perspective, can you tell us a bit about yourselves and about yourself and how you came to be working in this area? Yes, yeah, so I've um, I've been working in workplace culture, and and actually I was a happiness expert when we, this all started. Uh, part of the Global Happiness Council, looking at research and data that um, analyzed how workplaces are um, connected when they're connected to well-being, how that actually translates in higher productivity and just you know overall goals that organizations are going to meet. So there's these win-wins and did a lot of interventions and, and work with organizations. I mean, at the beginning, it was uh, Lululemon. We were their happiness you know, ambassadors or, or experts. And, um, so it was a really interesting job. But what I came to understand is that there's um, a small portion of organizations kind of in this special realm that are the best places to work, that they are the places where, you know, they support well-being and they're doing burnout prevention right. And, you know, we're at optimization level. So, uh, you know, encouraging employees to, to participate in self-care makes sense because it's not tone deaf because they're doing all the other things right. But um, as I started to really dig into to other organizations, I found that not a lot of companies were doing that very well, that uh, they were basically not even meeting, you know, hygiene. And so there was a lot of burnout. And so I joke about moving from an unhappiness or a happiness expert to an unhappiness expert, you know, in my last decade. And so the last, you know, four or five years has been really focused on um, understanding the chronic stress that leads to burnout in organizations and figuring out how to fix that. That's a fantastic summary. <laughs> um, I guess for listeners who maybe I think they know what burnout is, can you give us like a clear definition? They think, oh, I've experienced it or my friend had it, but, or maybe they don't even know they have it. That's a question that I'm interested in. Do you think people can have burnout and not really think they have it? Well, I'm going to start with the first question, you know, what is burnout? And According to the World Health Organization, they've actually redefined the term in 2019, which was a major move by them because experts have been really pushing them to make changes to that definition. They um, inserted it into their international classification of diseases, and um, they didn't necessarily go as far as saying it was a medical condition, but they did identify it as an occupational phenomena. So workplace stress left unmanaged. 
Um, and that's that's important because we tend to think of burnout in lots of different ways. The etymology of the word, you know, you think 80s teen movies where, you know, Judd Nelson is, uh, you know, walking across, waving his hand and, you know, taking too many drugs and dropping out of school. So when you actually try to, as an expert, a researcher in burnout, try to get people off of that way of thinking, um, the WHO helped with that quite a bit. And, um, and so when you look at the root causes of burnout, they're highly systemic. They're, you know, a, a legacy of work. So overwork and workload and unsustainable workload is one of the biggest, which we saw a lot of this year. But we're also looking at things like, you know, values mismatch and roles mismatch and, you know, just feeling like you're micromanaged constantly, that feeling like you have no control, um, you know, inequality and even just fairness is a big part of it. And this year we saw a lot of that polarization where, you know, people that were dealing with racism at work and, and you know, and um, ageism, and we see that in gender discrimination. So these are things when you actually look at burnout, um, you know, these aren't things that can be solved with self-care. These are massive infrastructure and policy issues that need to be changed in the workplace. Um, and then employees can show up, you know, safe and psychologically safe at work. Beautiful. And do you think that people people can be burnt out for a long period of time and maybe because of the work environment where their colleagues are experiencing something similar? that they think it's normal and they don't really think that there's a burnout per se. They just think this is what happens when you are working. Like this is the feeling you have. Absolutely. So we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, conversations around that. Like I said, legacy of overwork in industries like healthcare tech is, you know, widely known for the, you know, Elon Musk statement around working 80 hours a week, you know, solves these big problems. And that's uh that's important because, we have this expectation of people that becomes culturally, you know, um, assimilated. We just saw the Citibank announcement and the Goldman Sachs announcement that, you know, that they're going to start to do Zoomless Fridays and we need to deal with overwork. But then you talk to anyone in those institutions and they basically say, that's great, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to work 60 or 70 hours a week. And so that's the problem is just so culturally accepted that what happens is that nothing changes. So it needs to start really, you know, way before, um, you know, you get into a leadership position where the junior associates don't feel like they have to be hazed, you know, in those first years of, of um, starting a job. There's a lot of that. And tech is the same way with life on site and these other, you know, institutionalized ways of thinking about overwork. And, uh, and then it becomes just part of the, the expectation. Jen, do you think um, we're guilty of glamorizing um, this overworking? Because often when I listen to people who are, you know, incredibly successful, and like you said, Elon Musk is a great example there of working eight hours a week, and they always it's always painted as like the hustle, and this is what's needed to do to get to these certain, you know, these places in life, and, and you know, if you're not doing this, then you're lazy, and you're never going to amount to anything, you're a loser. And, and if we are glamorizing it, how do we go about changing that without them becoming the lazy person, the loser, the person who has no dedication and has no will to succeed? You know, that's a really important question because, again, it's just, you know, it's become a social construct. It's become a cultural construct inside of these organizations that makes it almost like turning, you know, the Titanic 
away from the iceberg. And it is considered to be cool. I mean, uh, you know, Ariana Huffington went around and talked about how important sleep is and how she thinks other CEOs that claim that they only got four hours of sleep last night are, are lame. And, you know, we have to start kind of having those conversations. But there's, you know, you really do need the highest level level leadership and influencers to to talk more openly about that. You see, you know, Jacinda Arden from Arden Firm from New Zealand, now Prime Minister of New Zealand, talking more about empathy and compassion and thinking differently about workload, the four-day work week. We need more policy. We need more governmental um, influence there. We need laws, you know, around overwork because if not, then it's so hard to change. I mean, if you want to be that person that really is standing up for your, um, you know, your well-being and you have every single person around you that that thinks and knows that if they don't do that kind of work, that they're not going to get promoted, um, then that's a that's a there's no way that you can sustain that. So leaders have to start celebrating the behaviors and modeling the behaviors that they want to see in their people. That means they have to commit to, you know, 40 hour work weeks. Anything over 45 hours is actually just completely lost productivity. You cannot actually do more work. If you do 60 hours of work, you might as well have worked 45 because you're just burning calories. There's no, you're not being more productive. And there's lots of really great research out of Stanford that has followed along on people working these extreme hours and they're not actually developing or doing more, innovating more than if someone worked 45. So it really is just getting the you know, the facts out there and the evidence out there, but, but managers have to be really clear about expectations and creating the environment um, that they want to see. We see too many leaders put on this sort of stoicism hat and then they say, don't worry, you know, I can do the work while you go ahead. And, you know, I'm not going to take vacation because I'm the boss, but you should. I mean, that, that doesn't, you, that doesn't help because you can't be what you can't see. And so we need to start seeing more of what the possibility is versus, you know, I'm over here on a silo, but, you know, you go ahead and take that vacation. Oh, but maybe we won't promote you if you do. Um, those are the dangers that I see, you know, still existing right now. It's really, uh, I'm glad that you brought up the point of like diminishing returns and the potential four day week, because something I wanted to bring up that I currently live in um, Madrid, uh, in Spain. I mean, I hope to live here for a long time, but they've recently, um, they've recently said that they're going to uh, extend a, a countrywide, a nationwide um, test to see if they can implement a four day week. And to start with, I'll just be for a you know, maybe 200 companies, I said, I think they said, which will be able to opt in. And then if it works, then maybe they'll try to, you know, in time, roll that out um, nationwide. Um, obviously, it's something I'm all for. Um, but I mean, in, in Spain, the kind of, at least in my sector, which is the tech industry, um, the majority of companies work half day Friday, so nine to three, which is at least something. Um, but I wonder, do you think um, the four day week has any any promise, any future there? I read that it's, it helped. There's a company that uses it in Spain already that they've implemented it just on their own accord. And they found that it really um, increases productivity um, amongst their workers. And, you know, like you said, you get rid of the kind of the dead hours, people just using that to waste time. Um, and the, the, the workers are you know, far happier working those that four-day week. Do you think that this is something that we could see, not just in Spain, but maybe even worldwide in time? 
you know, I'm absolutely um, optimistic about that concept of the four day work week. I know even Microsoft has tested it in um, in Japan with their employees there and certain markets, especially where I mean, Japan is a is an example of where burnout is extremely high and um, a lot of unhappiness and loneliness in that country that's associated with workload and overwork. And so they did test that. Um, in their Japanese offices, and they found that it was highly successful. The data has come back that it was really, really great. Um, you know, f- feedback. I know in New Zealand, there's been some conversations about it. We've talked about it in Canada too. I know Trudeau is uh, the prime minister has mentioned that there's some um, potential opportunity to have um, a test around that. So I think, you know, what I think is the greatest sign is when government comes in and they decide to make that test with corporate where there's an alignment there where it isn't just you know one company decides to make that decision and then another company um you know chooses not to because what happens is then it starts to be a perk you know it's and and perks are great but they're not necessarily going to change much you know like for example there's some great um, companies in Silicon Valley that are doing things like mat leave and paternity leave. And in the U.S., for example, that paid family leave or, or time off to have a child isn't it's the only OECD country that doesn't offer any sort of financial protection if you take time off. And uh, and so it becomes a perk where you have maternity and paternity leave where that should just be table stakes. And in any country, there needs to be certain standards that are expected and it isn't so, like you are drawn to one company because you have you're getting access to a fundamental right and i think we really need to start thinking about our mental health our um you know our happiness at work our well-being at work to be a fundamental human right and once you start to think about the, it that way and the government sets an infrastructure around that like france actually made it illegal to send emails after 6 you know, we we um, we have to have accountability. And I think that's when you really see big shifts happen and big changes happen. Jen, you mentioned the robust research about how over a certain amount of hours per week is just not productive. Can I ask why do you think there is still such uh, loyalty um, amongst many companies to say, oh, no, just the 60, 70 hours. Yeah, you're a hard worker. We need to do this. Because fundamentally, and what we learn in business school is that relationships between employers and employees are transactional. You know, I hire you to do a job, and that's the expectation. And there's still sort of an antiquated, you know, indebted servitude expectation from employees to employers. And so I, as an employer, can ask to you to do whatever I want you to do. And if you don't do it, there's another person that will fill that job. And so, um, you know, that when there's human centered leadership and there is an expectation that it's a it's a symbiotic relationship where I want to motivate you and make this a healthy place. And I believe in the data that it will actually make us more productive. That's really you know, that's a really great two way relationship. But we still have a lot of you know, we still have a lot of changing in how leaders are taught to think about how they're going to run their business. And and in most business schools, you're still being told that this is how you should run your company. And again, it's profit margin and and the metrics that we define as success in an organization should be aligned with well-being. It should be aligned with mental health. Um, And they're not in the same way. When we look at, you know, shareholder value, 
that should be associated with, you know, the, the, the well-being value. There should be some sort of well-being quotient that is attached to organization success metrics. And that isn't there yet. So until it's not entirely transactional, then we're still going to see this culture of overwork and, um, and just, you know, easily replaced workforce. I would love to see or I'd love for it to become commonplace for people to be investing companies based on how they treat their employees or how happy the employees are. Um, Sorry, one question I also wanted to ask was um, I recently read a book called Bullshit Jobs. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, An author from Dave Grove, yeah. (laughs) And I wonder, have you come across any research between the relationship between burnout and a a kind of indifference a significant proportion of the population feel towards their jobs? You know, absolutely. There was a recent massive Gallup data that, um, and, and it was millions of data, tens of millions of data points. And it found that um, 94% of the, the population that they surveyed in Japan, uh, 94% of them hated their jobs, like literally hated their jobs. And the global workforce, it was roughly 85% of people hated their jobs and hated their managers. And like hated was the word. Um, and so that's a problem when you, you know, currently our, our engagement uh, is about 50% or 15% of the global workforce is engaged and 85% is not. There's a there's a giant group in the middle that are just showing up to work. So there's just, you know, that where there's no purpose or meaning, but they go to work and it's okay. They don't really care, but they don't also feel horrible about it. But then there's, um, you know, a, a large group in certain parts of the, con- in, of the, on the continent and, you know, on, in the world that actually hate how they feel when they go into work. And so, this is a big problem. In in North America and Europe, we're seeing more about 30%, but still that's 70% of the workforce that's just disengaged in, in work. And and that's a problem. And so it's been a big, you know, rationalization for my work and, and part of why I'm so passionate and why I find meaning in it is because we spend 115,000 at work, you know, in our life. That's how many hours we spend at work in our lifetime. 50% of our waking hours is spent at work. And yet there's only... 15% of people across the globe that feel engaged. We need to do better because our mental health and our well-being when it comes to work, it, it's so critical. It plays such a role in our happiness when it's good. When we have harmonious passion in work, it is like super fuel. We feel so excited about our work. It's engaging. It's exciting. It spills over into our lives. Um, it's a wonderful feeling to love what you do. Um, and then we need to, the, you know, on the flip side, when it's stressful and, de, uh, you know, and detracting from our happiness and it's burning us out, it can spill over into our relationships, into our, you know, physical experience of life. It, it reduces our lifespan. You know, it gives us heart attacks. I mean, there's a huge impact on us when, when our work is unhappy. And so, you know, for sure there is uh there's sort of some stat, sad stats that need to change around uh, around how people feel about work. Those um, those stats are really quite alarming, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, I, I would probably say that I'm in that 
that group that feels apathetic towards their work. But luckily for me, I have a boss who's, she's just incredible. And she's always made sure that we don't work over hours and she's actually really on mental health. And she, she, but that, I'm not sure if it comes from the top down. I think it kind of starts from her, to be honest. So I count myself lucky that I have her as my boss because I think if I didn't, I might fall into that percentage that say they hate their job. Um, Cause I think that can be the difference, right? I wonder, I've got like a two part question. Um, I think, so um, Jim and I are millennials and I've got a sister who I think would be classed as generation um, Z. Um, and I think we've grown up, a lot of us have seen our parents, like you said, either apathetic or hateful towards their jobs. And the idea of loving your job kind of felt like something for the lucky few. But in reality, that's not something you strive for or even really dream about because it's not going to happen to you, right? Um, I wonder how how do we go about making that change? Like, How do we change it from being a thing where oh, it's only the really lucky ones of us are going to get something that we really love. The rest of us have to just churn it out and just do what we need to do. How, how do we bring that change? That's a really excellent question. And what we found even in our data this last year with millennials and Gen Zs in, in the workforce, they're the most hard hit from a mental health and well-being standpoint from the pandemic. We talk a lot about parent burnout and you know, and the juggling demands. But if you're in the millennial group, your well-being is significantly low in most cases. I know that, that Seb, you mentioned that you're doing pretty good, but there's a lot of people that in this group that are feeling like their careers are on hold. Um, They feel like they're not making any headway. After 2008 with the economic crisis, what happened was um, more young people went back to school and got these, you know, additional qualifications, which made them again, uh, overqualified for the jobs that they're in. So which makes them, uh, you know, less happy as well in their jobs. And then we're seeing that now from this next sort of economic crisis, more people going back to school, which is making them more qualified. And then they're, you know, unhappy because they're not really doing what they want. They don't feel connected. And in those early stages, that first 10 years of work, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of control of your work. You're more microman, more likely to be micromanaged. You don't get to have agency and choice. When we saw, you know, in the data is that the the higher you were in the organization, the more sort of uh, prophylaxis you had to burn out. Even though there's a lot of executive burnout, there's just more choice. You have more ability to kind of make the decision about what you want to do. And I I sort of liken it to our experience as, you know, grade school kids, and then into high school, you get a little bit more connected to a tribe. And then, you know, you go into post-secondary, and then you get to be a little bit more specialized. I think the just the reality is that we are sort of when you go back to school, or sorry, go into your first year of work, it's like going back into kindergarten again, or grade one, you're sort of starting at that initial phase where everything is out of your control. And so, Part of that, I think, is really being good at mapping to what your goals are Um, and job crafting is what I honestly constantly suggest for people. Um, And I have this example, which I really love. um, And the the researchers that that sort of founded that that term or co-authored that term did this study within hospitals and they found that there were these this one group that were really highly retained. They took very few sick days. They loved, they described loving their jobs. And this other group that were just the same group in the same role hated their work. They were miserable. And what they found was that there was this one part of the group 
we, they were asking them, like, how do you describe your job? And they, there was one group that described their job because they were all cleaning the hospital. And it was in um, a certain ward where there were many um, of their patients in vegetated states. They were in a coma. And what they, they described their job as being like, very tactical. Like I go in and I wash the floors and I move the paintings around or I, you know, adjust the flowers or, you know, I clean the beds and, you know, basic stuff, right. That a cleaner in a hospital would do. But then there was this other group and they called themselves the patient ambassadors and they saw that their role had this purpose in it. So they felt like the way that they adjusted their paintings would help heal their patients whenever that they tucked their patients in and changed the flowers that it would maybe help them come out of a vegetative state. And when they did, they would know that they were loved and cared for. Um, they, you know, chose to do other things that weren't part of their job, like sing to the patients or play music for them. And so when you think about your job, it's so important to think about it in a way where those tasks that seem useless or mundane or meaningless we have to give them meaning to change why they matter into the overall goal. We need to map to our, our bigger expectations. You know, where do we want to be in this? You know, when we get out of kindergarten and, you know, or we get into high school, you know, stage in our in our careers, where do we want to be focused? Do we want to be focused in this space? Do we want to be on a leadership track? Do we want to remain an individual contributor? Do we want to maybe think about being an entrepreneur? What are those ways that we can take the tasks that we do every day to give them meaning so they map to larger goals? And, and that's hard to do, obviously, when we're working hard and we're burned out. But the same amount of hours these people were working, the same experience that they were having every day. And the mindset is really critical to how we have very healthy careers, especially in those early stages. Um, and it also makes us just love our work more. And, and when you think about what is the goal, it's your own experience of work and your love of what you do that is going to change how well you are. Um, and so that plays a critical role. We aren't going to ask an employer to be responsible for our happiness. Um, we're going to ask them to be responsible for not detracting from, from our happiness. So our job is to show up in a way that makes the most of what we can control. And I think that gives, you know, young people that are at work a little bit of agency, you know, a little bit of choice. And, and that helps to kind of not feel like you're so controlled in the environment. I've got a question here and it might sound controversial given what you've just said, but um, I wonder if, we put too much meaning on jobs um, in terms of our own pride, our sense of identity. I said that before that I was kind of apathetic towards my job, but I don't think that kind of detracts from me as a person. I just understand I moved to Spain. I had no contacts. I found a job in this sector, got headhunted, and now it seems that my CV has been geared towards a sector when it really was just kind of a, a lucky few steps. It wasn't, it wasn't a plan by any means. And maybe someone could argue, well, yeah, well, you've created this podcast to kind of make up for that lack of meaning in your job. And they might have some, there might be something to that argument. But I wonder, a lot of us, I feel like we put a, a whole identity hangs on what our job is and the amount, maybe the amount we earn, maybe the company we work for, you know, if it's a real big name that everyone respects automatically, the profession, you know, a lawyer, everyone automatically kind of drops their jaw at you. And I wonder if, if we kind of somewhat, decrease the meaning that our job is and sometimes again this kind of seems uh, 
kind of paradoxical in the conversation that we're having right now, but almost saw it as a means to an end and not necessarily of, oh, this is me, my job is me. Would that also some help our mental welfare and, and, and improve our self-esteem? I think you're absolutely bang on with that because there, there is an element where you look at, say, for example, Martin Sullivan, who is uh, the author of Flourishing, and he really um, is sort of the the pioneer in positive psychology and this idea of what is important and how do you have a life that is happy? You know, what is a happy life? And he came up with this acronym acronym called PERMA, which is essentially positive sort of thinking. So are you tend to be optimistic? Do you think that plans sort of work out okay, even if you hadn't expected them to, or you have a bit of emotional flexibility? Um, the E is engagement. So you feel engaged in your life and that doesn't need to be work, but it can be work just is a, such a huge portion of our lives that engagement, you know, helps if we can feel it at work or otherwise. Relationships are the most fundamental. They're the ones that increase our lifespan. They make us, you know, when you, when I, I always say you can't drag the U-Haul behind the hearse, you know, you don't come with your titles, you don't come with your, you know, you don't come with your stuff. You, you come, you know, you come with people that attend your funeral because you were you, you were meaningful in their lives and they cared about you. That's what you really care about on your deathbed is what relationships you formed. And then do you have meaning, you know, in what you do? Is there a sense of meaning and purpose in what you do? And every day, do you feel a sense of accomplishment? So these this distinction around what is a happy person and, and how you have a happy life, work really does intersect with a lot of those things and what we do in the day. But if we're finding that in other places and we're figuring out a way to combine all of those aspects um, and we don't require it in the same way from work, then I think that's healthy. And I do think that we need to look at harmonious versus obsessive passion when it comes to work, which is even more really interesting research. But when we have harmonious passion about work, that means you know, we're healthy, we're still sustaining our relationships, we're enjoying what we do. Um, it doesn't need to mean our identity, because often when we have a identity associated with work, it becomes obsessive passion, it becomes the inability to disconnect from it, it means that we can't leave it at the end of the day. And we are thinking about it the minute we wake up. And so there's a there's this sort of, you know, perfect ideal place for us to be where we're connected to what we do in the day and we feel like there's value and that can be anything and we you know that we do we see so many people you know that are in waste management from you know CEOs to those people that are um, you know doing the jobs that we might think are are the worst jobs on the planet and they love what they do because it's just that they feel that they're contributing and so it's more about you know, making you making um, your day feel like there was some pur purpose or that there was some reason for it. And if we're contributing just by contributing or if we're just making a paycheck to pay for other things that also make us, you know, happy or we find other ways to feel meaning and accomplishment. And that can be spirituality, that can be religion, that can be altruism, that can be volunteering. Um, as long as there's sort of that that good well-rounded way that we live our lives work can play a role or it doesn't need to but we we can utilize and leverage work to to give us some of those things that lead to a life well lived what i hear also from what you're articulating jen is the importance of having like a strong sense of self you know whether you have a difficult day at work or a difficult week or whether your job is considered by some to be you know lesser or for whatever but if you have a strong sense of who you are, that can't really <clears throat> affect you as much. 
And I read an article you read, uh, or you read, you, you read, <laughs> I read an article that you had written recently about dealing with grief in the workplace. And I was really struck by it because you highlighted the importance of allowing the person in grief to be able to express themselves authentically, which often isn't the case in work. But it did make me ponder whether you, like you think, and can we really be ourselves at work? Can we always be our, our authentic selves at work? Or do we always have to be able to cut off a little bit of ourselves? That's an interesting question because I think the desire um, is to be our most authentic selves. And what we're finding from the research and data is the more authentic and psychologically safe we are, the happier we are in our workplaces. And that's why, you know, cultural fit, I don't like that word fit. It's, it's you know, a weird word. But um, I think that when we, we do feel what I call effortless state of belonging, you know, around certain people and inside of our workplaces, it's a very special feeling to have where you just get to be who you are. It makes the experience so much better. But I mean, we all wear different hats in different parts of our life. I always say, you know, the, the LinkedIn version of me versus the Facebook version of me is very different, right? And, uh, and you're sort of, you know, where you let yourself be most um, intimate and open. I think that's okay for us to have different versions of ourselves in a way that still stays authentic to who we are. However, the organizations where we're completely not ourselves, where we feel um, just that lack of openness to be even part of ourselves is where we see a lot of burnout. And, um, and we're watching that in just people that, that feel like introverts, for example, there's a whole other way of creating space and environment for someone who is an introvert. Susan Cain's book, Quiet, is, is so remarkable. And it really analyzes, you know, the, 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 you know, ways that we need to think about different types of personalities inside of groups where we're all married, you know, it's like high school. It's very interesting where we're, we're asking everyone to be, you know, um, to get along in these workplaces. And yet there's going to be different dynamics for different people. So it's why Gallup went from asking, do you have a best friend at work? To do, and then found, you know, in their Q12, they asked, do you have a best friend at work? And when they found that someone had a best friend, it completely changed the experience of work. Um, you know, even 41% reduction in burnout, 57% uh, more likely for you to receive praise. Um, promotions were increased if you had one best friend at work. Um, all of these, um, you know, it, they play a huge role in our well being. There was less absenteeism, less truism. You know, there was just a bunch of, you know, really great data from that. But then they changed it over and said, you have close friends at work. And it wasn't the same as having one, it, it, all of the data changed and it wasn't as important as having just one person that you are psychologically safe with, that you can talk to, that you can be yourself with. So again, in workplaces where we're asking for it to be that everyone is best friends and that everyone, you know, obviously we need to have professional respect for each other and, you know, not be rude or mean. There shouldn't be bullying. I mean, that's just standard. But 
You don't need to go and have a whole bunch of relationships at work. Having one really close friend and having a manager that understands that that's actually more beneficial to someone than having a whole bunch of, you know, necessary to have the team building exercise where everyone gets along, that it's about one close friend. Then we can start to think about how we we um, improve community at work because lack of community is a high um, predictor of burnout. And so if we have better community, which could mean just one person, I say it's the person that you, you don't need to test, but if you had to, they would pick you up at 2 a.m. from the airport or would bail you out of jail if you needed, you know, take you out of the drunk tank if you needed it, you know, the, that kind of friend. You never have to test it, but you want to know that that person, if it was really, really necessary, they could do that for you. And so I think we need that. We need to foster just more, you know, just close relationships with one person. And then that would, you know, make us allowed to be more of our authentic selves in the workplace. You mentioned that the well-being or the well-being that we are feeling since the pandemic, since there's a huge move towards working at home has decreased. Do you think that this is one of the contributing factors, the kind of uh, inability to really connect. I mean, it's just Zooms and Zoom calls. It's just not the same as being able to be with someone. Absolutely. It's part of our genetic history. It's part of our biology. I mean, if you were on the savannas and you were alone, you would get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. But if you were you know, on the savannas and you had a tribe, you were safe, you know, or safer. And that's still part of our imprint as humans. We need to connect with each other. We need to connect in real life. You know, I do, I know that said has mentioned that his organization has moved from, you know, remote full time. And so I actually think that there needs to be a hybrid approach to this where there is time where we connect with people at least, you know, once a quarter or once a month where we go in and meet our team in person, because we, we don't get the same actual neural activities and neural, um, chemistry that is what makes us feel tied. So mirror neurons are part of how we interact, right? We, I need to mimic your behavior to show you that I'm safe. You know, I get along with you, bring me into your tribe. We can form an alliance. Um, if you don't have that, um, that subconscious sort of neurochemistry working where we're not creating that, that bonding chemistry, then what happens is it atrophies. We start to synaptically prune that. And that means we just, that dies off in us. And so humans still need to see each other in person. And again, you can get that in other ways, you know, with friendships outside of work, but when you're trying to form relationships with people at work, you do need to at least see them once. And what technology has done is it's replaced relationships instead of augmented them. And we found that, again, through research, that if you just meet someone in person, you can have a longstanding relationship with them and through technology because you have had that that personal interaction. It makes it better. I mean, we can. I have lots of friends that I've you know, only known through email and and professional relationships that I've only known through video conferencing. So I, I know you can still have those connections, but there is something special about meeting that person in person and then having that relationship sustained through technology. So we do, I believe that it's going to swing the pendulum too far to have work from home forever um, sort of policies built in without looking at the hybrid options for those that want to be able to interact with people in, you know, in person, in office. 
Um, Jen, you, you spoke about, um, you know, the COVID and how, I wonder if for you, it almost been like a, a perfect kind of case study in a way, because all of these companies, I said, like you use my example there, you know, the, the CEO of my company is not, he's not, he's not a, from my generation, he's old school. And he says that himself. And it, if it wasn't for um, COVID, we would have never even have been allowed to work from home for a couple of days a week, let alone full time. And it's only because we were forced into the issue, we then saw it work, then you know the added benefits of no um, office costs and blah, blah, blah. And before you know it, now, like you said, the pendulum swung the whole other way. I wonder, are there any like takeaways that you've seen from this massive swing in the way that most of us are working due to COVID that are either good, bad, and stuff that we can either learn from or that we can just take forward once we kind of go back to normality? Well, what we found is that certain groups are enjoying the shift, but for the most part, people are really missing um, the the opportunities to have serendipity, you know, at work where you just walk by someone in the office and talk about their kids or, you know, you catch up on things. It could be a few minutes. People are just missing that sort of professional intimacy where, you you know, you you connect. Um, And so especially, and there's some new data that was very interesting just, and and some research that was done about um, specifically high performers really wanting to go back. It was upwards of 74% of them said that they wanted to go back, that they were really missing the office. Um, And 90% of that study said that they wanted a hybrid. And so I think that is really what people want right now. As a workplace expert for the last decade, I've been like screaming how good working from home is and how we need to have flexible options. And it's, you know, it's extremely important for us to have that ability for people if they want to work from home that they can. And so here we are, and I'm still saying I want flexible options, which means that people are working from home all the time, need to be able to get into the office. So we we can't have it just one you know, one environment or the other environment. It really needs to be that there's, it's inclusive and it's thinking about those extroverts that that actually only physically get, you know, the, the sort of energy from interacting with other people. So I know personally, I mean, I look at my spouse who's, he leads a team, he's at the C-level of an organization and he is missing that so much. He he has been going back once a week and he did mention that it's a lot more work to get ready and he forgot how hard it is to like actually get dressed and, you know, go, go in the car, and drive somewhere. And it's kind of a pain, but, but when you get in the office and you see people, it's like, Oh, you know, I, I forgot how much I missed that. So it really shouldn't be all or nothing. It's, it's just going back to the same pre COVID rules and they're not flexible. So, you know, understanding that well-being is different for different people and needs are different for different people. So it's about figuring out, okay, do you want to be in the office twice a week? Do you want to not be at all? Cause you love working from home and that's excellent for you and you're really productive. Or do you want to be back full time? Because that's really good for you. And that would be the ideal. That would be where we should get to. And, you know, often when a pendulum swings really, you know, far in one direction, it does sort of make its way back. So I do see that normalization. Um, but what I do think has been really great is for organize, you know, organizations where they have bosses like yours said, where they're saying, you know, I'm old school and all of a sudden they were forced into it. And now they're like, okay, well, I, I can be new school, you know, on this. And, and that's actually been a really good byproduct of, of the pandemic is just that forced, social experiment, that workforce experiment that taught a lot of people that we can be really effective working from home. And so, you know, both options are really, really still good for uh, the success of the organization. 
I wonder, um, Jim and I were speaking just before we uh, before we started recording, and in the UK and Jim's experience as well, um, there's been a kind of a movement towards like hub stuff and programs like that, which to me feels insidious having never used it. And if my bosses tried to implement, I mean, there's not much I could do, I guess, but I wouldn't be best pleased, let's put it that way. And I wonder, do you think that there's, uh, that this opportunity to improve has also actually provided some bosses the opportunity to exploit even further? And, you know, because Jim expressed before, again, before we started recording that the kind of, the, the ethos in his job was, well, if you're at home, you're not work. What else have you got to do but work? So then, instead of it being an eight-hour day, it's now a twelve-hour day. You know, you've got the hub stuff thing, which literally just feels like I don't know, uh, nineteen eighty-four George Orwell type vibes. Um, and is that does that worry you? Absolutely. I am. I'm cautioning why we're still behaving like we're an emergency. I mean, we we went from these acute solutions. I get it. You know, we. We are using Zoom because we need to connect and we and managers were terrified that if they didn't see, you know, their employees, that they probably are working. And there was a lot of control stuff that was happening at the beginning and just holding on to culture. And there was a lot of leaders that were just, you know, they had no frame of reference. So it's fair that they kind of were throwing a lot of things at the wall to see what stuck as far as, you know, team building and connecting everyone. Um, but we're over a year in and we're still behaving like this is an acute situation and it's not. And there's some organizations that have made absolutely fundamental strategic shifts where you are going to be working from home. And that's, that means that's long-term. So we can't just keep acting like it's the first three weeks of the, the pandemic lockdown. And I think that's what this digital interfacing it with um, each other all day is like we're still stuck in, in in March 15th where everyone went into lockdown. In my previous book, I wrote a, about the, the walk and talk and how some of the most amazing ideas and innovations came from people getting on a phone and going for a walk while they talked about these ideas. Because when you look at the brain walking versus looking at the brain sitting, it's like it's lit up like a Ferris wheel over here versus this. It's it's not. And so what we're doing is we're sitting in front of a computer. It's sedentary. So we're not even moving. So now we're all getting unhealthy. We sit all day. We're looking at each other in the screen, which actually makes us feel um aggravated, our cortisol goes up, but constantly looking at our own face and other people's faces that we're not, that are strangers to us. There's so much wrong with all of this digital interaction. And yet it's, it's just become technology deciding for us. You know, there's this great, um, and you know, I watched the office, the U S version of it. And Steve Carell is like in his car and his (laughs) GPS is telling him to drive into the lake. And he's like, you know, but it's the lake and the GPS is like, keep driving. And so he drives into the lake because his GPS told him. I feel like that's Zoom right now. It's Zoom's telling us to just drive into the lake and we can't stop it because we're so in, in control. You know, it's it's holding us hostage. We need to do way better about, you know, um, just controlling that. Like, Anybody that's running a meeting should say, is this meeting necessary? Do all of these people have to be on this meeting? Um, can I make it 30 minutes? Does it need to be an hour because Zoom only gives us the, the hour to, to be on calls? 
Anyone that um, needs to get off 10 minutes early because they have back-to-back Zoom meetings, absolutely, no questions asked, jump off. You don't, do you need to put on your video camera? No, you shouldn't have to put on your video camera. And then can we make this a good old fashioned phone call? Like, why does it have to actually be an interface this way? Get on a call and go for a walk. You can do a lot of really great, you know, learning and conversationalizing and bonding with your employees in that same way. So we really have to, you have to get off of this, you know, driving into a lake modality and, and and rethink where we're at because I kind of see this next two years as recovery. I've been calling it the recovery period because it's not going to be just go back to, to normal or business as usual. It's about recovering from what we went through. And there's going to be a lot to recover from. And part of that will be moving from this acute emergency mode of working to long-term sustainable well-being at the core kind of planning and practice. Um, and, and I think what's happening is we're just sort of continuing to fall into the patterns and not questioning why we're still doing what we're doing. I love that you said that we can walk and talk because my girlfriend, she she goes nuts when I walk around the house or I go for a walk and, and I have a chat with my friends. And so now I've got scientific um, backup there to explain uh, my odd behaviours. And you've also maybe got into what uh, my favourite guest with your uh, US office um, example there. So, But just, just before I let Jim get in there, I wanted to just, you talk about the recovery and almost the future that we're going to see. And... Um, this I was just talking to Jim before, and we were saying how like our grandparents slash the you know people who maybe fifty, sixty year olds now their kind of way of seeing things was you get in base uh, base job, you work your way up, and you get given a watch when you retire. And then I say that our parents maybe they still they still see themselves in the corporate structure, but they were allowed to kind of have more jobs within that structure, right? So my mum and dad they both changed jobs a few times, but they were always in the same sector. But, it, you know, and I was saying that I, I think that the way that, at least from you know, our projects and the way our friends, it, everyone I know seems to have a side project that they would love to grow into a full-time thing or many side projects. And um, I was just telling you beforehand that I saw a tweet um, saying, it kind of says, what Gen Zs want to be for their job. And the first two options were YouTuber, I don't know, have a 50% blogger 24% and then kind of more traditional jobs doctor so on and so forth and the person who tweeted this was um a gen x and they were like oh our generation's done such a poor job at inspiring the younger generation like this is what happens and then someone quote tweeted that and said it's almost as if the younger generation has seen that working nine till five five days a week for 50 for 50 years of your life for a job that for a company that care about you isn't the way to go and i wondered do you, and we talked about agency beforehand. Do you think that younger people are going to try to take more agency and, and, and have these side projects and think, well, you know what? Maybe instead of having a job that pays me forty or 50000 I can have four different projects that get me 10000 each. And, I, and I'm my own boss there. Because I remember when, when COVID happened, and I'm sure a lot of people felt this way, you know, my boss was very frank with us and he said, look, this is going to be real tough and I don't know if we're going to make it through the first three months of this. If we do, we should be fine, but these first three months are going to be real sketchy. And when he said that, there was an immediate sense of panic for two reasons. Obviously, because I'm going to potentially lose my job, but more than that was because 
I could do nothing about it. It was completely in the CEO's hands and what he was, whatever measures he decided to take. But there was nothing I could do to help that situation. And I felt real helpless there. And I, th I thought to myself, I don't want to be here again if I can help that. Um, so do you think that maybe younger people are going to start moving away from the, the traditional way that we see careers unfolding? Yeah, I love what you just said, because um, there's so many points that resonate. First, my father was in banking and he actually started his first job at the bank. He was sweeping it. And then he ended up being the uh, vice president and retired in the same bank, with the gold watch, you know, the whole thing. Right. And um, and it was there was loyalty at the time. But at the end, he had so many regrets. He said he wished he had been a carpenter his whole life, you know. And so, you know, there's there's a really Inch, and it's probably why I'm so, you know, entrepreneurial. And, uh, and whereas my mom was a nurse practitioner, which is sort of much more entrepreneurial, and she had her own, you know, setup and stuff. And then at, at, at around um, 30 years into nursing, she quit her job and opened up a quilt store. I mean, it was just, just let, told us she was not going to be a nurse anymore. And she was going to start this quilt quilting store. And, you know, we were like, okay, that's, you know, that's fine. And, and I think I saw her as that person that said, I don't want to, to die with my gold watch. I want to, you know, I want to have to, I want to have choice, you know, I just want to change. This isn't making me happy. And so I sort of followed that model. And I think we're seeing a lot of people right now um, that are, are pursuing a more um, entrepreneurial path. And it is because there's a much more opportunity. We're in a global workforce where we have access to technology to different buyers and to different consumers so it's it's easier than maybe our parents you know when they they were younger to even be able to do that but you know it there is a um you know there's a lot of talk around the side hustle being what you you know what you can do for a living and i think too what's so interesting when you talk about is this actually you know something we're seeing in our last global policy happiness report, we looked at data that showed that um, millennials and Gen Zs would take 37% less pay to do something that made them happy and feel connected to what they were doing. And that could mean their side hustles, like 37% less pay is significant, but you have control over that and that you are, you know, running your own ship. And with so many young people now deciding that the cost of university is just too prohibitive and you know going to some of these schools are just not necessarily giving them the kind of advantage that that they think that they're going to get you know there's a lot of reasons why this is happening and even just the fact that you could go and get your master's and you're still a barista at starbucks and that's probably what you're going to be for 10 years and that's making you not happy you can't pay your bills so why not say okay i might do something that's a trade or i might get some you know, better video software, you know, college diploma that can teach me what I actually can tactically do. And that is showing that that is actually going to make you more money. And all the data is showing that that's the case. Like we're, sh we're showing that those, those, you know, Yale and Harvard degrees, you know, are so, and we, we push for them. They're really important. And yet at the same time, there's also, um, there's also very selective and who gets to really benefit from that. I mean, I think all of us need to really understand, okay, what do we want to do? What is the education that supports what we want to do? And instead of thinking that we have to follow the social construct, think about what is going to make us enjoy what we do in the day. And if it's podcasting, we can go now to a college and get a podcasting diploma that teaches us how to actually make our own podcast. I mean, 
the amount of schooling that serves every single thing that we want to do is, um, is I think, a, a testimony to what is going to be um, what we're going to see in the future of work. Jen, you're dropping so many uh, gems here, and I'm already looking forward to re-listening to this. But also, I'm sure there are listeners who are going, Jim and Seb, you're talking to a burnout expert here, and you still haven't talked about how to help me out of this burnout that I'm experiencing. <laughs> so in your words, uh, what, what are your key kind of points for someone who says, yeah, I'm, I'm resonating with so much of what you're saying. What can I do? And I guess the, the follow question would be is how much is is it in the hands of the worker and how much do we need a, a boss like Seb or uh, the kind of well-being focused organization? You know, that's a really great question. I think what is important is first, how do I identify if I'm burning out? And, uh, you know, I like to use the Maslow burnout inventory. That's a scale that's an academic scale that really does help. I mean, and I'm going to simplify it here because it's a little bit more complex than that. But basically, we like to look at the frequency of feeling certain, um, you know, feelings each day. And um, to identify for burnout, the more we feel, like say for, we measure per week how often you feel this way. And if you're exhausted at the end of the day, to the point where you feel like you have to take a nap or you're not focused and you've like, you're losing clarity. Um, the more frequently you feel that way, uh, that level of exhaustion, the more likely you're burning out, the more frequently you dread going to work on Monday, the more frequently you feel um, exhausted waking up in the morning and really struggling to motivate. Um, the more exhausted you feel in the middle of the day where you just can't get your work done um, and it's taking you more time to burn those calories. So that's that's one stage. And then there's the cynicism stage, which is the most clear. Um, and that starts to make you even more at risk of burnout. So how frequently you feel cynical, which means how frequently do you feel like you don't have control over this? You have no agency. This is going to be like this forever. You know, I don't see a way out of this. Um you know, those types of feelings. We saw a lot of increase in cynicism in our data this year, but a lot of that had to do with, you know, racial injustice and polarization and, you know, women for um, being pushed out of the maternal labor force. I mean, those types of things really impact our um, levels of cynicism, which is part of a social construct too. So you've got, you've got to think about, you know, do I feel exhausted? That makes sense from a pandemic standpoint and just we're really tired. This is a really tiring time. We're chronically stressed. But am I feeling like there's this is never going to change? And that's when you really have to worry, okay, where am I at and when should I make a decision? Um, often inside of organizations too, we we misdiagnose someone's performance issues as being as being or we misdiagnose chronic stress and burnout as performance issues. And so managers will just think, OK, well, that person is showing up late or leaving early or is disengaged or withdrawing. Um, so it probably means I have to put them on a plan to, to let them go because it's it's performance based where it's often not. It's often chronic stress that underlines all of this especially if an employee has been really strong and all of a sudden it's atypical of them and not, they're not performing. I mean, we should be asking, where did that happen? How did that happen? And so that's really important too. I think from our own standpoint, you know, I'm a, a person and I've had to be in this role for a long time where I am my own employer. And so I have responsibilities to my employee, you know, which is me and we need to do a better job of, you know, 
like stepping out of that. How do I want to model the behavior for my employee? And it's it's hard to do that when you are an individual contributor or you're a person that's an entrepreneur, you're on your own, or it is your side hustle that you've made your job at, that we're seeing a lot of young people start to do. And, um, and even in the workforce, leaders tend to be very stoic. They don't you know, do a good job of modeling our behavior. We need to step outside and say, okay, am I, fo- am I walking the walk? Am I following my own rules? Um, am I taking breaks in the day? We've added 48 minutes to our workday, which is astronomical. And we've increased our meetings, um, number of meetings by 24%. Women are actually working 20 more hours per week, which is the equivalent of a, of a part-time job. Um, and that is in the pandemic, these this data, that's just massive. Um, And so when you think about how much more work that is, we need to be able to reflect on what our goals are every day. Um, Are we creating false emergencies on things we think our boss wants us to do or needs from us? Um, Are we we deprioritizing things and prioritizing things and we don't really know what our boss wants from us or our manager wants from us? Um, But if we are individual contributors, we need to be able to also say, you know, why is that so important that has to happen right now? Um, I've had these hacks where I have my, which you might have seen, my out of office response. Um, I'm very clear about what I can do and what I can't do, how soon I'm going to get back in touch with you. If I need to block off chunks of time for writing, I'll set, I'll actually create an out of office that says I'm in, you know, flow time. I'm in heads down time for the next four hours. If I don't answer your email, you know, I will get back to you. It's really about managing other people's expectations of you. And people will will stop, you know, pushing you to answer their emails if they've got this out of office reply that says, I'm just heads down. I'll get back to you this afternoon. You know, use technology for good. Um, blackout time. I have blackout time in my calendar that says writing time, like, and it doesn't get booked. And it's so easy to be like, oh, well, this is a false urgency. I put this writing time in, but it can be deprioritized. If it's in your calendar, if you committed to it, it shouldn't be moved. And that's what we need to start doing as individuals is making sure that we're setting those boundaries around our time. Um, when I was speaking with in the research for the book, I spoke with Dr. Marie Asberg and she's in Sweden. And it's the only place that burnout is considered a medical, you know, sin, is, is actually, you know, there's pharmacological treatment for it. And, you know, there's programs that support it. Um, they call it extreme exhaustion disorder, but it's burnout. And what she told me is that too often we live to the to our margins. We, we actually we, we write into the margins of our lives, which I love this, this idea of it. You know, if we have a, a line paper, there's these margins on the side that are supposed to be those spaces that we give ourselves. If there's room for error, you know, we can write in them when we're really stressed, but we live within these margins so that, you know, we have space, but we just write all the way across the page and we just fill our lives um, with things that we think we need to because it's the space in that 24 hour cycle or that, you know, seven day work week. We we need to start to think differently about the space and the priority of that space and, and to give ourselves the ability that when there is stress that we can tackle it without completely falling apart. And that's how we're going to prevent, you know, systemic burnout. And that's how we're going to prevent burnout in ourselves. That's fantastic, Jen. I appreciate this is so helpful for me just listen to it right now. I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to feel the same. And um, just to, like the two part question before we finish is I was thinking this morning about this call and I said, I really want to ask Jen, is it difficult for her sometimes because she is 
uh, a burnout expert and a happiness and work expert is it difficult for her sometimes to kind of live through all of this knowledge that she is just soaking in you know that she's aware of is it is it because you seem like you're doing a great job of it with all the with what you're saying before but i yeah i just wanted to know that and i guess the follow-on question is what we always ask is how do you look after your mental health so really great questions and you know i have probably why I wanted to write this book and focused on the research about five years ago is that, you know, as a a female startup founder, which is a very, you know, underfunded, difficult place to be as a a tech startup founder, as a woman, um, I burned out. And I noticed it when I lost, you know, healthy relationships, I was withdrawing my, my, even my close circle of relationships were were faltering. Um, I was obsessive about the passion. I was so married to the idea that it didn't matter that we were poor and we were constantly broke and, uh, you know, and there was so much financial stress all the time. But because of this idea that I was so, you know, it was so important to pursue that idea, I lost sight of that. And then instantly it was like, that's it. And when you look at the research, what happens is you kind of go for 18 months or two years or whatever. And then when you actually burn out, you fall off a cliff, you break off that cliff. And so that was really what had happened. And so all of a sudden I had to, you know, it was me leave, leave the, the company, kind of end that role. I said, stopped being on all the boards I was on. I actually took a good four months away and regrouped. And, and I think that was a moment where I realized that's what it, that's how catastrophic it can get. You know, where you can lose everything because you are not doing the things that that you need to do. And so that really led me to understand why certain roles and professions are more burned out. My one of my first one of my first big articles for HBR was um, happiness is not the absence of negative emotions. And so going through that was understanding that happiness is part of a journey of resiliency and having that ability to have post-traumatic growth out of a time of trauma and stress. And I think that that's what this last year is going to tell a lot of us is actually we're developing these amazing skills, you know, from optimism to gratitude to emotional flexibility and resilience because we've gone through this collective trauma together, really. Um, And most of us have really weathered this, this very painful impact on our mental health as a collective, which creates empathy. You know, so I understanding all of that and knowing that happiness also means unhappiness made it so that this became a a different kind of mission. But I wanted to do that in a way that was really sustainable that said, I learned from this experience and now I'm going to make sure that I model a totally different scenario. So I take a walk for an hour every single day, which seems, you know, quote unquote, um, frivolous, right? Um, I walk for an hour in the forest every day with my dog. I um, take breaks. I put space in my calendar. Every single day I put space in my calendar. I say no to things. And I don't like that in the office where it's about employees just saying no. I don't think that works there. And that's a very privileged and biased place to say, you know, hey, just tell your boss no. But when it comes to you, you know, and, and you're running the ship, you have the authority to 
to say no um, and and not have put false urgencies on things. So, you know, I, I do walk the walk now. And I think it's really important. Is Are there times where I feel fatigued? Are there times where I know, okay, maybe I'm pressing it? Um, are there times where I feel like at the end of the week, I've maybe booked up my calendar a little bit too heavy? Yes. And in the middle of a pandemic, when I was homeschooling my three kids, and I was humiliated to know that I know nothing about any, you know, any of their subjects, even my grade two child was humiliating me and that she knew more than I did. Um, you know, those are the moments where you're like, okay, I'm a little beat up here. This is a lot. Um, so we all will go through them. The The whole point of being a model for burnout is saying, I know when I'm hitting those, those points and I pull back and I give myself space. And so um, it's, it's important too for me to say, there's no right way to feel right now. And so those days where I was demotivated and I had brain fog and I felt like the dishwasher was the, my enemy and I was tired of doing it, you know, unloading and loading it for the 10th time that day, I let it go. And I put on Netflix and I wore my baggy, you know, sweatpants that I love and I let go to it. And I think we do need to have moments where we cut the guilt and there's a lot of self-compassion and grace that we need to give ourselves this year in particular. Jen, it's been absolutely fantastic uh, to have you on. It's been real great stuff. For people who, um, who've who listened and you've really whet their appetite, where can, you said your book's coming out soon. Uh, what's it called and where can they find it when it is out? It's called The Burnout Epidemic, um, appropriately named The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. Um, and that's available for pre-sale now on Amazon and all the other places. It'll be available on Audible and all those other you know places soon. Um, you'll be able to find uh, me just if you want to go and find out what I write about and et cetera. You can go to my website at jennifer-moss.com. Perfect. We'll put all of those links in the show notes. So for anyone who wants to find find out more about Jennifer herself or, or the book, they'll all be there. Um, easy for you guys to find. Uh, just want to thank you once again for having you. It's been real great stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really good conversation. You guys are excellent at what you do. So if this is a, a side hustle, you should probably make it your full time. There we go, Jim. We've heard it from the expert herself. There we go. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.